Hello, Chris. What's up, Jason? Back from vacation. Yeah, how was it? It's great until I came home. Why is that? Because uh, my grand or like our parents ruined our kids. So <laughs> I could see that. Yeah, you didn't, you didn't come back feeling super energized and everything. No. Also, I was like, we had really bad turbulence on the way to Vegas, and so like the whole way home, I was like checking the turbulence forecast, like just waiting <laughs> for the plane to nosedive into the ground. Oh no, that's that's kind of rough. But while I was there, it was great. So. Well, hopefully uh, you'll get back in the groove of things then. Yeah, it feels good. How about you? What's going on? Oh, not too much. Um, I forget what I did this weekend. Oh, I went and visited my parents this weekend, so feels a little bit like I had a, a mini vacation. So, Is that because you guys went on a mini trip? No, not one yet, but uh, we'll, we'll have some soon when the weather gets better. I don't know that anyone knows about your my mini Cooper yeah. deal. <laughs> it's like a family tradition. We'll have to talk about that some other time. <laughs> uh, so today uh, I am really excited as is Chris uh, for the guests we have on. And we actually, for the first time, there are four of us total. So I will let our two guests, if you guys don't mind, just introducing yourselves. Hey, everybody. I'm Sam Stevenson. Um, you might know me on the internet as S. Stevenson. Um, I've been in the Rails world for a while, since uh, 2004, I think, and I work at Basecamp. And uh, I'm Javon Makmali. I also work at Basecamp with Sam. Um, I contribute to Rails somewhat infrequently and to a number of uh, Basecamp's open source JavaScript projects. Cool. Uh, how did you guys get started in programming in general? Um, Sam, actually, if you want to take this one first, I'm going to mute for one second. Sorry, I'm having some uh, audio glitches on my end, but I'll be right back. I think I got started, uh, it was definitely in elementary school. Um, I was fortunate enough to have access to a computer and uh, our school library had a book on basic programming. And I picked that up and devoured it before I could figure out how to even run the basic interpreter. Um, and it just ended up having a lot of fun figuring out that I could type some things in and have the computer do my bidding. Um, and I think that that interest blossomed throughout uh, elementary and middle and high school. Um, I went off to college for computer science education and found it to be a little too vocational. Uh, so I dropped out and was uh, following along on the Ruby mailing list around that time. And I think this was around 20, 2003. Um, and uh, just really into the Ruby language. Um, and uh, came across a post by this guy, David Heinemeyer Hansen, announcing a new web framework. And I kind of touched on all of my interests at the time. And I got started contributing back uh, to the open source project. And uh, that's how we initially met. And that's how I got started uh, eventually working for 37 Signals 
which then became Basecamp later on. So are you, like when I hear the story of like Basecamp, there's like four employees. Are you like one of the original four? I think I was employee number five or six. Okay. That's awesome. I didn't realize you had been with 37 Signal so long. Yeah, I, I um, joined 37 Signals in uh, December of 2005. That's awesome. like the whole history of the internet, basically, in that time frame. <laughs> <laughs> um, I joined Basecamp, I think, uh, let's see, I don't remember the year, but I think it was just about eight years ago. And Sam was already a veteran there. Um, but I, well, I guess backing up a little bit to um, my history before that, I think like a lot of people in um, our industry um, was just kind of learning on my own. Um, most, the majority of my programming knowledge to date has just been through work experience or um, just experimentation on my own. I went to a community college program in um, Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I'm from, that kind of got got me started on like a professional track. I'm doing like air quotes, but um, I, the bulk of like what I've learned and that I still apply and use today has is, is just been uh, through experience, either in open source or um, at work. Awesome. So uh, before I kind of delve more, I guess, into some of the other questions, um, what are your roles? Like, what are your titles, I guess, at Basecamp? Uh, my title is programmer. Same. Uh, <laughs> that makes this next question a little easier. <laughs> so um, I see a lot of recently, like, you know, kind of front-end related open source libraries coming out of Basecamp. I'm thinking like, you know, TurboLinx, Stimulus of the more recent um, and typically, and correct me if I'm wrong, I see kind of both of you as the faces of these projects. Um, so I was just kind of curious if you wouldn't mind kind of sharing the process of how you like go from an idea to building the library to open sourcing it. Yeah, that's a good question. So Javon and I are on a team at Basecamp called Research and Fidelity. And uh, we're tasked with uh, doing research type work such as uh, working on open source frameworks um, and also uh, keeping the bar high on uh, <clears throat> on our uh, on our applications uh, in terms of the front end experience and just making sure everything is polished and works well um, and that extends also to the development experience so not only do we want to make sure we have a good uh, experience for our customers but also for uh, everyone else at the company who works on the app. Um, I think we may be a little bit different than most other organizations um, because we have designers and developers working on the same code base, write in the same, uh, you know, the same files. The designers will go in and write Rails controllers and stub them out. Uh, they'll uh, implement their own ERB templates and Programmers will go in and, and fill in the missing pieces and uh, kind of go back and forth in a, in a virtuous cycle uh, until uh, whatever they're working on ships. Um, 
And so it's very important for us to invest in tooling to make that possible. And I think a lot of our work comes from uh, just seeing that uh, the frameworks that are out there, uh, libraries and frameworks that are out there are geared towards a much different type of organization than the one we work at. Uh, Did you guys always have uh, that sort of process where designers would be more technical or is that something you guys stumbled into over the years? As long as I can remember, it's uh, every, basically every feature at 37 signals uh, or base camp rather uh, has started with design first. And that means an actual HTML mock-up of whatever is being built. Okay. Yeah. I remember watching like uh, Ryan Singer talk about uh, designing stuff and then just like, building it out in HTML in one of his talks a long time ago. And I always thought that was really cool because um, it kind of allows you to iterate in sort of a, in a real environment instead of Photoshop or something. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which I thought was pretty interesting, but I feel like you don't see that a lot in other companies. I, I can't say uh, I haven't worked at many other places, but uh uh, it, it just based on on what I read and um, the way other frameworks and, and libraries work, it seems to be a much different style of development. It kind of sounds like the dream to me. Like uh, I don't mind like working in HTML by any means, but having like someone who like has an eye for it to actually like write out HTML sounds amazing. I I think it goes both ways too. Um, most often, you know, new features will be design led and they'll get something pretty much either working like good enough to ship to production or almost ready and a programmer can step in. But there are also times when um, a programmer might start first on a, say, a smaller feature. And I think pretty often they'll go in the other direction and uh, try to basically take the design as far as they can go and then hand it off to a designer to, to polish things. I, I know that's the way I like to work. Um, I feel, I feel like we're all, I feel like HTML is kind of our common language and designers and programmers kind of work on either side of it. And we're constantly sort of reaching over into the other's territory to, to learn I feel like I get better the more I try to do a little bit of the designer's work and the designers get better at programming the more they step into to our territory. Um, so there's no, there's definitely no, um, you know, clear line, like your job is done. Now it's this person's job. I think everyone's encouraged to, to um, do as much as they can on their own and then get help when, when they need it. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, it just reminded me of like, there's been times in the past where I've worked with a designer who will give me a PSD or something. And then you realize like, well, you know, what happens if um, the text is like 10 times as long or something or whatever. And those like, I feel like those moments are always kind of interesting because if the designer isn't thinking about sort of how things will work, when they're implemented, then they can end up with a design that you can't really use because you've got to modify it. Um, I, I just imagine that helps make the process 
going back and forth between design and coding a whole lot more seamless in a sense. Absolutely. I think that's really the magic of HTML is that you don't need anything more than a text editor to go in there and, and see what it's going to look like with a, uh, say a long name or, uh, you know, whatever kind of data you can imagine. So are you guys doing a lot more front end stuff now? Um, or are you still doing Ruby, um, somewhat? I, uh, like to call myself Ruby adjacent. Uh, I got my start in the Ruby world and, and still love it. Um, but pretty much all of my work over the past decade, I would say, has been uh, in JavaScript uh, or other languages, trying to uh, <clears throat> maybe bring the uh, Ruby ethos uh, to other parts of the development experience. I'm pretty much in in this the same boat as Sam. I mean, I think we, Sam and I both work on actual product features, Basecamp features. And when we do, we we're, we work in Ruby um, the same as anyone else. And we'll take features, you know, fully to production. So, um, but the, the majority, I'd say 90% of the code I write these days is JavaScript. So speaking kind of of the the Ruby ethos kind of in like JavaScript's a good example. Um, I assume you've written probably both of you quite a bit of CoffeeScript, which kind of feels you know like the a little bit like the Ruby of JavaScript at least to me. Um, but recently, there's been a lot of transition away from CoffeeScript to JavaScript, um, especially I guess with like Webpacker and Babel. Um, Kind of like, how are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on that? I think CoffeeScript was a huge success. Um, it basically uh, showed the world the viability of source to source compilation for JavaScript. Um, you know, taking one language and turning it into JavaScript that is more or less a one to one mapping. Um, and I don't think that we would have, uh, I, I think if you look at, at most of the features in ES6 now that, that people really love, they all are, uh, they directly come from CoffeeScript. Things like um, uh, the REST operator, uh, destructuring assignment, uh, Class syntax largely is inspired by CoffeeScript. Um, but I, I think it's great that uh, the community has come together and, and standardized on some of those things. And it's undeniable that people like them. I, I feel I've definitely noticed a lot of the, the conveniences there that you had in, in CoffeeScript that were just kind of more natural because it was more like writing your Ruby code with classes and everything. Now you don't have to worry too much about what context is the word, the keyword this and everything. Um, do you guys, are, are you guys switching most everything over to um, Webpacker and Babel? Um, like I know you're doing tricks and turbo links and action text and a lot of JavaScript projects. 
Are those all getting transitioned over or are some of them staying in CoffeeScript? Um, I can I can start to take that one on. Uh, so for our application code, Basecamp, um, just application JavaScript, we write um, Babel transpiled just pretty much vanilla ES6 and use Webpacker. And um, we took the approach of basically writing new JavaScript that way and leaving all of our existing CoffeeScript um, code just in place and deciding not to really add to that, but continue to just basically put it in maintenance mode. Um, and then we we definitely have some like tricks is one of our older um, JavaScript libraries that's open source and that's all CoffeeScript. And we don't have any plans to just blanket rewrite in a in another dialect now or plain JavaScript simply just because it's a lot of work. It's a big project, and um, you know we we may get there someday. But um, new new work um, like stimulus is um, mostly being done in TypeScript, and I'm sure Sam can expand on that. Yeah, Stimulus is uh, TypeScript, and we just recently converted TurboLinks to TypeScript as well. Yeah, I saw the the commit for that. How did the transition go? To, and you know, for anyone that doesn't know, what is TypeScript, and and why did you choose it? TypeScript is essentially ES6 with optional type annotations, and uh, one of the things that type annotations give you is or at least in TypeScript, uh, they give you the option of being able to know at any point in the code where something might be null or undefined. And in my experience, that's about half of the issues you run into writing JavaScript. Um, so that in itself is a huge advantage. Um, but the other big advantage is that you get amazing editor integration. So. TypeScript has a, a language service, is what they call it, that integrates with various editors and allows you to do things like right-click on a class name or method name and get a list of all the places that uh, that method or class is definitively being referenced and vice versa. Uh, and then it just makes it very easy to rename things, which is uh, something I do a lot when I'm working. Uh, trying to find the right name for something. I'll go back and forth between sometimes half a dozen different names. Um, being able to do that in the editor without really thinking about it is a huge advantage. Um, and so in my experience, building frameworks, uh, TypeScript is, is really, really good for that kind of thing because you get the... You really are just getting confidence uh, you're getting confidence that you know what everything is at every moment um, and uh, confidence in refactoring. Um, this is an interesting thing that we were just talking um, about in Slack was, you know, there's a lot of movement towards types with TypeScript and, and just kind of in general, people talking about languages with types. Um, how do you feel about that versus you know, Ruby where it's duct typed and we don't have type hinting or anything like that. I see types uh, in, 
Let me let me walk that back a minute. <laughs> um, it, one of the things that I find you know interesting is like in your JavaScript, a lot of this is kind of like silent errors. Um, so when you have problems in JavaScript, it feels like they're more crucial in a sense because you may not know that your customers are having issues unless you have you know JavaScript error monitoring. But that's that's exactly right. You you're uh, much more likely on server side to detect things. Right on server side, you'll you'll quite easily get a notification when there's an exception. On the client side, you often don't. Um, and there are uh, there's a, a large class of errors that can be detected and avoided statically um, by virtue of annotating your code with types. And I think there's a good argument to be made for whether, uh, for the, you know, just debating the merits of the ergonomics of, of type annotations. And uh, I think it's likely that in the future we'll have to do less and less manual annotation. Um, but I'm I'm not a compiler engineer. Um, I think <laughs> for me, I, I see types as a form of editor metaprogramming. I'm getting yeah, I'm getting knowledge at edit time instead of runtime about the. That's code. definitely interesting. That's one of the things I've been most interested about types in is not necessarily. I mean, yes, nice for the like nil checking things like that or null checks for a program. But I'm really interested in all the tooling you can do around like statically typed languages, uh, like you said, like editor features, things like that. Like I. I've never worked outside of like Java in a static language, so I don't really know. I could just be speaking ignorantly, but like what you talk about TypeScript is like kind of what I wish I had more of. What I like about TypeScript is that they are trying to model everything that people do already do with JavaScript. So it's not, uh, you know, it's not imposing a new model of programming really. And that means if you're passing around objects, between method calls, for example, objects that don't have to be instances of classes. Let's just say you have an object that has three properties and maybe one of them is optional. You can quite easily specify that as a type in TypeScript. And uh, the thing is, the types are already there, whether you're annotating them or not. Um, the annotations just help you make more sense of them. I think the the on the receiving end, um, types can be quite welcome too. Like uh, if you're writing a stimulus application, not working on stimulus itself, and you're using an editor that supports the types that are exported along with stimulus, um, you get really great IDE auto-completion um, for the full stimulus API, just for example. But this is any library that uses TypeScript or exports um, TypeScript compatible type files. So you you get, you know, it's it's a more almost Java-like IDE in that you get amazing uh, inference and, and auto-completion while you're working. Um, but it definitely takes more work up front to build the library that way. Um, I know I know I've I've been frustrated at my own pace sometimes with TypeScript feels like it gets in the way a little bit when you're just trying to figure something out. But um, the great thing is you can just kind of back away from that and as with TypeScript, write plain JavaScript, and then sort of work backwards and um, 
annotate all the necessary types. Uh, what editor are you guys using that um, you know has integrations with uh, the TypeScript stuff? Yeah, Visual Studio Code pretty much ex- exclusively for TypeScript. I'm also using VS Code. I still, use, I still use, I'm, I'm still, um, I've been using Atom for a really long time for almost everything else. And I still turn back to it for basically everything but TypeScript, but I could easily switch over full time. This is like the first time I feel like I'm in a like-minded group of text editor people. <laughs> I'm usually around like BIM experts and I just feel like, uh, the Talladega Knights, like Ricky Bobby, like, I don't know what to do with my hands right now. <laughs> the Holy <laughs> War. <laughs> um, I was just going to ask you guys, one thing I've always found interesting about your sort of like philosophy on front-end JavaScript code is is to kind of keep things lightweight and, and vanilla JavaScript in a sense. I mean, you're using CoffeeScript and TypeScript and stuff, but... Um, you're not obviously going for any of these new hot frameworks or anything. You want to talk a little bit about your philosophy on how you build out your front end features? Well, Javon, you want to take that one? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think most of the, the JavaScript libraries, tooling, et cetera, that we've built have been, you know, specifically for the style of um, application development that we do more broadly. Um, that being, you know, Rails on the back end, server rendered HTML for the most part, pretty much the same way that we've been building applications for, you know, 10 plus years. Um, we've, we've kind of had the unique opportunity to work on, you know, Basecamp at the, the application, but really it's like three iterations on it. Um, we, there's, Basecamp one, two, and three are both all, all three in production still. Um, Basecamp one being the first Rails app, and then two and three came later, and um, they're more or less all built the same way. If you look at all the Ruby code, like the the Rails controller code looks identical, and you know it's different code, but the structure is all the same in all three, and um, we've just kind of adapted the front end to be more modern, more performant, um, while keeping this easy, same old structure that we've had forever. Um, So that said, we've written JavaScript libraries to work with server rendered HTML for the most part. And we've I guess we've we take on the assumption that the HTML could appear on the page in any number of ways, and we don't want to think about how that HTML got there. Um, it could be a full page load. It could be a Turbolinks page change. could be some partial Ajax insertion or another JavaScript library inserting its own DOM nodes. From a development standpoint, we don't want to think about any of that. We just want to decorate our HTML with some small to medium amount of behavior 
when it appears. And that's pretty much been the same since the beginning, but how we've done it has um, evolved over time into basically stimulus today. I remember a blog post of yours uh, or someone at Basecamp wrote one about using like a data behavior tag or an attribute to kind of just generically define, like, I don't care what element it is on the page, um, but I just want to say that, you know, my JavaScript should look for this and then apply these uh, features to it, which seemed like the, the natural extension that stimulus grew into. Is that kind of what happened? Like, because it, um, it seems for the most part, the same kind of thought process with decorate your elements. Doesn't matter if they're buttons or selects or divs or whatever. Um, you know, you can make them interchangeable and move them around, but you can still kind of apply the same features there. Data behavior is definitely, uh, <clears throat> I think, where the, the idea for stimulus came from. Um, to expand on that a little bit, uh, data behavior is just an attribute that we picked. I think, I think this was around the time of Basecamp two, um, and the idea was to get away from using class names, CSS class names, to specify JavaScript behavior uh, using the unobtrusive JavaScript patterns. Mostly because uh, there was no easy way to know whether a class name referred to presentation or to something that was controlled by JavaScript. And so we just picked a different attribute and uh, uh, set up a system where we, uh, at various points in the code, when something on the page changes, we would uh, check to see if there are any new data behavior attributes and look inside that attribute for a token and uh, depending on what the token was, we would do something like install an event listener or uh, perform some kind of rewrite or, or whatever it may be, any kind of dynamic behavior. And I think over time that, that grew pretty unwieldy, uh, especially when you have several different developers and designers all working on the same thing. Uh, it just kind of turns into a big soup of uh behavior tokens that we've sprinkled throughout the page. And I think that the, the general idea is good, but uh, clearly needed a little more structure. And uh, that's, that's what we were trying to get at with stimulus. Cool. Yeah. I've, I've really enjoyed um, using stimulus for like, basically you're kind of writing stuff like you would with, um, jQuery, but you're, or just regular JavaScript, but you like don't have to define all your event listeners and all of that stuff. Um, could you explain how the mutation observer stuff works behind the scenes to make this stuff work? Yeah. I'd, um, actually, uh, before there was stimulus, uh, we had a starting in, in Basecamp three, we, uh, began using mutation observer to, uh, install these data behavior behaviors. And um, that allowed us to remove, it, it just, it allowed us to make things a little more robust. Um, it didn't matter. We, we didn't need to, for example, hook into uh, jQuery events or 
things like that to uh, figure out what new behaviors needed to be installed. Rather, we were just keeping an internal mapping of uh, which elements had these attributes, when they changed, and what needed to be done. And uh, I think around 2015, maybe, uh, I started working on a library called Sentinella, which uh, was essentially an extraction of Basecamp's mutation observer system um, and worked on that for a while. And then it eventually became stimulus. Uh, but the original design was a little bit different. Uh, but the way the mutation observers work is we, we wrap uh, the mutation observer API at the very lowest level and turn it into what we call an element observer. And then on top of element observer, we have an attribute observer, which monitors for uh, changes to any uh, specific attribute name. And on top of that, we have a what we call a token list observer. And a token list in DOM nomenclature is uh, essentially like the class attribute. It's a space, white space separated list of tokens. Um, and that's, uh, we use that for a couple of different things in stimulus. Um, but everything is essentially built on top of that. Uh, we're just watching attributes with specific names, uh, waiting for those attributes to change, detecting which tokens uh, were inserted or deleted or whatever, and then mapping that at a high level to uh, controllers and actions and targets. I actually had no idea how that worked. So that's... It just was magic to me. It's a, you know, it's a really, uh, the mutation observer API is really beautiful. Uh, and so many things are possible now that we have it. And it's, it's actually been around for quite a while. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm really glad we have it. I believe it's natively supported down to IE 11, um, uh, without any sort of polyfills. So you get pretty wide browser support for free. Um, and it certainly cleaned up, um, the worst parts of our JavaScript code, um, prior to using it, we basically relied on a, a list of events like DOM content loaded or Turbolinks events or some custom events. And whenever any one of them would, would fire, we'd more or less scan the whole DOM looking for relevant you know, say data behavior attributes and, and install behavior. Um, and now we basically just get a callback when relevant elements appear or disappear. Um, and it's just, it's a night and day difference. Yeah. It seems like a much simpler uh, way to do things. We, so I work for a, a company called Podia and we are, we're Rails app, you know, kind of through and through. Um, right as I joined, they released a pretty large uh, feature that's built mostly on stimulus. Um, so this next question is a little self-serving because I write a ton of stimulus now. Uh, what are like? What are some ideas or things we could maybe even look forward to um, that y'all have for stimulus for the future? 
Uh, one of the things we're working on, um, and I know I've uh, emailed with Chris about this in particular, um, is uh, expanding our uh, API for uh, accessing data attributes that hang off of controller elements. Um, and we have a, an open pull request for that right now. It's um, pending some documentation changes, but will eventually be merged. Um, but the idea is to make it easier to uh, access commonly used data. Um, and one of the most common types of data that we've found in our own usage in Basecamp is uh, just passing CSS classes. Uh, and uh, an example of why you'd want to do that is, for example, applying a, uh, let's say a, a busy indicator to a particular element while it's undergoing some kind of request. Um, <clears throat> if you want to write your controller in a generic or reusable way that you might not be using that same class name uh, from one component to the next. Um, so we allow you to specify something like uh, data busy class uh, on your element and then easily access that from within your controller, um, which you can then pass to uh, the DOM APIs for adding or removing class names. And then another thing that we're doing is um, adding support for other types of data. Um, so numbers, strings, booleans, objects, and arrays. Uh, you can specify those as data attributes, and they'll automatically be decoded for you uh, in your stimulus controller. and uh, building on the mutation observer API, we have a callback. So anytime any of those attributes changes, you can implement a method in your controller and uh, react to those changes. That's awesome. Uh, going back to like the different like types, like uh, you, you mentioned Boolean, which like just today uh, I had a data attribute and I just gave it like a string because you know. Uh, of true. Mm -hmm. And so does that mean like in a future update, like when I give it true as like a string, it'll convert it to a Boolean? Exactly. Scene? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> uh, it also means you can uh, treat those as properties in your class. So you can give that attribute a, a, a logical name and refer to it as a, uh, a property on the instance uh, assigned to it or read from it and it'll automatically serialize to and from the Dom. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that because, you know, as along with the, um, mutation observer listening to when those change, you could do that where, like you said, a busy status, you could have like a status as one of your extra parameters there and then just change that. And then your stimulus controller could go ahead and update it kind of automatically. Exactly. Noticing that change, which would be incredibly cool. So it's it's in a way like, you know, React and Vue have all this state management stuff. But in a way, it's kind of like just use your attributes in the DOM as your state and store and just monitor those. And that's kind of how stimulus does the same sort of things, I guess, if that makes sense. Is that right? I would say the fundamental difference between stimulus and most of the other frameworks is that we treat the DOM as the source of truth. Uh, 
all your state lives in the DOM. And I think uh, maybe people were kind of burned by the jQuery, uh, just manipulate anything whenever you want philosophy um, and, and move kind of uh, across to the other end of the spectrum and said, okay, well, we're going to put all of everything in a JavaScript object internally. We're going to fetch it from JSON and keep it in memory. And uh, we'll just render HTML from the client side. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what's in there or what it looks like. And that is very much uh, incompatible with our development style uh, because we do every, we, we do most of our rendering on the server side. And so it, for us, it's a, it's a way of uh, just bridging that gap. Yeah, speaking of uh, rendering, um, just recently I made a little screencast and an example of kind of, uh, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the cocoon gem, but having a, a way to dynamically add, say, a question and answers in the same form. Um, do you guys have any advice on ways to approach the sort of dynamic template stuff in that sense. What I, what I ended up doing was I used uh, fields for all the existing items in the database. And then I did an extra fields for inside of a, a template tag that was uh, a brand new answer that was empty. And then I could use that to populate and in my stimulus controller, just insert new ones whenever you um, click that from a, a template. Is that something that uh, you guys do often or kind of discourage? Because I know in a sense, you could just make a round trip to the server and grab a partial and insert that on a page pretty easily. Um, so maybe that's what you would recommend more. Or I'm just curious to hear what your thoughts are on, on that stuff. Um, I actually just did the same thing that you did. <laughs> um, I'm working on a feature that needs to basically... Um, dynamically add small little partials of HTML. And I used a, I, I, I used the template tag and made it a target. And the controller code, you know, finds that template element as a target and then just clones its contents. Um, and so this is for a, it's like a autocomplete widget where the selected values kind of stack up as little rendered um, chunks of HTML. And I was really happy with the outcome there, um, in part because the template um, HTML is all in the same um, file. Like the, it, it could have easily been like a, a rendered client side or uh, you know using a, a template string in the controller code, something like that. But you lose that connection from the, the, the source HTML. So I, we haven't really addressed the issue of, well, not the issue, but the, the various approaches of, of dynamic rendering or client-side rendering with stimulus itself. I think we purposefully leave that up to you. Um, and I wouldn't say we discourage it in any way, but stimulus just really isn't the tool for doing that. Um, but I just kind of plus one to your template approach. I think that's like a really nice pairing with the, the um, just the thinking behind stimulus and the, the, the desire to have 
your HTML kind of in one place and annotated expressly. Uh, I'm not sure if I would use it again, if I had to do a lot of dynamic um, sort of updates within that template, you know what I mean? Like if I needed to interpolate um, a bunch of data within it, but I think it's a a great way to go for simple use cases. Yeah, that, that's that's great to hear because I, I felt as I was doing it, it's perfect for a simple use case where mine was just a text field. Um, and then it was like, well, you know, if you're doing something like um, a common example might be something like a, a country drop down and then the states change uh, based upon the country you selected or whatever, that might be more of one where you would just have a controller that makes an Ajax request to get the template and you could just render that template HTML server side and insert that or something. Um, Cause it felt like, yeah. Uh, if you had to do too much dynamic rendering of things, it would kind of get a little bit out of hand um, pretty quickly. I think the other thing that I don't know if people overlook this option, but um, there's so much you can do just by hiding and, um, revealing content with CSS, content that was always there. It just needed to be toggled in some way using class names or uh, the hidden attribute, et cetera. There's really nothing wrong with over-rendering a little bit on the server side and and revealing content as needed that way. I mean, it, it doesn't scale to a certain point if the amount of content is, you know, enormous and you need to list every city and every country, et cetera. But um, for a lot of cases, I know I know I've deleted a fair number of stimulus controllers throughout Basecamp code and just replaced it with CSS. So that's an approach we actually took, I think like we got from Basecamp uh, in terms of like caching too. Like we just render out maybe more HTML than we need uh, so we can cache it and then use like CSS, um, like just use it to show and hide things. And it's worked really well for us. I think that's an extremely uh, underappreciated approach. It's worked really well for us. It's worked since like the beginning of the web, basically. <laughs> There's, it's battle hardened. Yeah, that's funny. Uh I remember a post of from Basecamp somewhere that was like talking about rendering um, like just a little form of uh, checking who to add to a project or something. And it was like, well, why wouldn't you just render everyone? And then with CSS hide yourself because you're not going to add yourself for the, maybe the, even the existing people. But if you do render everyone, then you can cache that one time and you never have to spend time processing that again, unless you add or remove people from your team. And I was like, Oh, that's such a great, you know, simple approach to things. And just a little CSS takes care of all of that for you. And you could take advantage of all that caching. Absolutely. And that's a great example of uh, the power of data attributes as well. Uh, Annotate each one of those elements, each one of those people with a, data person ID attribute, for example. Um, And then you can hard code a CSS class at the top of your HTML file uh, that says, uh, with your current person ID in there, uh, 
create a, a CSS selector that matches that and hides that element, for example, uh, or use a stimulus controller to read that data attribute and remove the element from the page or whatever it is. Do you deal with any um, flickering on that or do you hide it by default and then display things? Uh, I think uh, it's there's a lot to unpack in that question uh, with regard to flickering, but uh, fair enough. <laughs> mutation observer fires uh, within a microtask, uh, rather changes to the DOM trigger mutation observer updates within the microtask queue, uh, which means that they happen not synchronously, but within the same tick of the event loop. Um, so that if you're responding uh, with JavaScript uh, to a mutation observer callback, you effectively are able to make any kind of change you want to the DOM without it, without a paint being thrown in the middle. So, uh, okay, I didn't realize that. That's super cool and like an important little piece of why all this works well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I feel like you know the sort of there was always the uh, uproar of people that were like, you know, Rails new, skip Turbolinks. Um, but I feel like with Stimulus, it just makes it so easy to just go ahead and use Stimulus in Turbolinks and everything just works really well now. It's like a very welcome improvement to have now that uh, I, I wish we had years ago, you know? It has been kind of the missing piece and um, they are very much designed to work together, even though they don't uh, depend on each other at all, or or even uh, use events to communicate with each other. They just they just work by virtue of mutation observer. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely been a battle to uh, kind of improve the the public perception of Turbolinks. I think a lot of people are warming back up to the idea now, though, of server rendered HTML and uh, you know a progressively enhanced. Uh, alternative to single page applications. I actually see uh, Turbolinks used like in other server side languages now too. Like I have a fair amount of like PHP people I follow, and I like see them talking about Turbolinks. I was like, oh, that's neat. Yeah, I think I've seen the Laravel community uh, has, or at least a certain segment of it has adopted Turbolinks. I know the Phoenix community also has. Um, seen some success with it. So that's great. So before I ask a question and look like an idiot, I'm going to ask a precursor question. Are you, you're both pretty involved with turbo links, correct? Yeah. Yeah. We, okay. we, we uh, both work on turbo links and stimulus and tricks. Okay. So there's one project on like, or I guess really technically two projects I'm really curious about. Uh, how they kind of came to life, and that's TurboLinks iOS and TurboLinks Android. Uh, I guess I'm curious, like, whose idea was that, and like, how did you work together with like these uh, your iOS and Android devs to build those? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> development for the iOS and Android adapters started. Uh, almost at the same time as work for TurboLinks 5, uh, which I think was around 2015. Uh, 20, yeah, 2015, we were working on Basecamp 3 at the time. 
Base Game 3 shipped in October of 2015, I believe. Um, and we had a, a homegrown solution to uh, the problem of how do you put a, how do you fit a TurboLinks application into a native shell, a native mobile wrapper. And uh, due to various architectural uh, reasons that are not that interesting to talk about, um, the previous TurboLinks code base didn't work very well for that. And so we knew that we had to rewrite it in a way that uh, the control over what we called visiting um, could be uh, extracted out into a separate object, which could then be implemented by a native adapter. And so we uh, started in with a proof of concept, TurboLinks 5, um, early that summer, and then uh, worked to get it, you know, working pretty well in the browser, and then uh, implemented the iOS adapter. And um, that was uh, mostly me and, and a programmer at Basecamp called, named Jeff Hardy. And um, we taught ourselves Swift at the time. And um, we had had a little previous experience working with Coco before. And so it wasn't that much of a, of a stretch, uh, I guess, for us. But um, we figured out how to, how to make the web view do our bidding. And um, really what we wanted there was uh, to efficiently use the web view to present uh Basecamp in a native wrapper. And for us, that means using, uh, so the benefit of, of using TurboLinks is essentially that you uh, use a single process for visiting multiple pages. And that's where most of the speed comes from. Um, and so to extend that to a native interface means you want to continue to use a single web view across a number of screens. Uh, even if those screens are presented natively. So we developed a way that the uh, uh, web view could move from controller to controller, uh, mostly transparently. And uh, then uh, Dan Kim, our Android programmer, ported that to Android. And uh, we managed to get that mostly finished uh, before the public launch of Basecamp and then took another few months to document everything and get it ready for public release. I, I'm just so enamored by that project. Like it's just really cool to me. It was really fun to work on. I will say uh, we, we, I, I think we all, there was a lot of doubt that it would work. Um, but having had some experience with working with uh, UI WebView, WK WebView in the past, I was pretty sure we would be able to do it. And yeah, it, it has served us well for a few years. And we're now starting work on TurboLink 6. So, Well, I feel like I have to ask now, uh, <laughs> what can we expect from TurboLink 6? I, I can't make any promises, and we're still very much in the uh, development phase. But uh, one of the things we're hoping to one of the gaps we're hoping to close is uh, lack of form support in TurboLinks. 
currently we kind of rely on your application having some sort of uh, JavaScript running to handle form submissions and to turn those into AJAX requests. Um, so for example, in Basecamp, we use the Rails UJS adapter to do that. Uh, but that it, it takes some hacks uh, to be able to detect when, uh, for example, a form has been successfully submitted. Um, and there are uh, plenty of times when you want to know when that's happened. For example, if you're presenting something modally, um, you want to you know that a form is successfully submitted so that you can dismiss the modal. Um, and so we're working through some of the scenarios there and trying to figure out a, a good solution for uh, baking that into Durbolinks itself. That's funny you mentioned that because I'm pretty sure I was uh, one of the people that opened up that ticket <laughs> on uh, Durbolinks way back when. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's been a, you know, that's just a naturally like tough problem to solve because if you, you know, like, there's some simple things like if you submit a form and the response is successful, you can just use a Turbolinks visit to the new URL. But if it fails, you could return a document back, maybe, or you can do, you know, a JavaScript response. But then what happens if you get a 500 error? How do you then, you know, insert that? But you don't want that to have any of the styles um, that Turbolinks has kind of already cached for you in the browser. You know, you want that to kind of clear everything out like a normal request so you can display your error page in its own uh, design and everything. So there, there's a lot more to it, I think, than people realize, you know. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty hairy problem. Um, but I, I'm confident that we'll be able to arrive at something that uh, works, works for most people most of the time. That's really exciting to hear about because, uh, you know, when that was kind of added. I was like, man, you know, the scaffolds have local is true set. So they're not submitting with Ajax, but how cool would it be to, you know, spawn a new rails app that has all of your forms submit with Ajax. So then it works automatically with the native adapters. Um, so that everything is just kind of smooth out of the box. That'll be a super cool thing to have when that when that lands. Well, Chris, maybe we can get you to write our marketing copy. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be happy to. <laughs> well, I don't want to take up any more time. Uh, Chris, do you have any any final questions or anything you're itching to know about? Oh no, that was that was the teaser for Turbolink Six <laughs> was was all I needed. Yeah, thanks so much for being here, guys. Sorry to put you on the spot with the <laughs> the Turbolink Six. <laughs> Just got excited. <laughs> I love to talk about it. Uh, thank you both so much. Um, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Jason and Chris. Thanks not only for being here, but just all your work. Uh, that yeah, absolutely. You share with all of us. It's it really does make our lives a lot better. So thank you. Well, that's great to hear. Yeah, thank you. It's it's nice to hear things like that because we all probably don't tell these tool makers in our lives nice things often enough. We just open GitHub issues, so it's a good reminder, like a, how good it feels to tell someone that and to hear it. Yeah, and and a lot of a lot of your people who are using this are customers who don't even know 
the work that you've done to make those features, you know? And so the only people you get to hear from are the developers being like, Hey, uh, there's a problem or I didn't use this right. And it doesn't work. And <laughs> so, yeah, we thank you so much for all the work you guys have done. Um, it's kind of, you know, it's weird to probably hear, but like you were working on the stuff that we now do for a living, which is awesome. Well, that's really the kind words. Um, if you want to be found on the internet, where can people find you? Um, you can still find me on Twitter. Uh, my name's Javon, J-A-V-A-N. That's my Twitter handle as well. That's I've really stepped off of Twitter uh, lately, but um, I'm on I'm on GitHub. <laughs> uh, my username there is S-S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S-O-N. So just open a, a TurboLinks issue and mention yes. and it'll go straight to it. <laughs> that sounds awesome and awful. <laughs> well, once again, thank you so much. Um, if you, uh, maybe when TurboLink 6 comes out, if y'all are itching to talk about it, we're ready to have you back on. I'd love to. Sweet. Chris, wrap it up and... Uh, so talk to you soon. All right. See you later. <laughs>